At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Companies. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, April 20th, 2023, marks the 24th anniversary of the unimaginable tragedy that took place at Columbine High School in Colorado. So one of the deadliest mass shooting attacks at a high school in U.S. history and every attack that has taken place on school campuses subsequently, they always reference Columbine. Columbine. Well, in the Columbine attack, 13 people were killed. 21 individuals were wounded at the hands of two students. And today, one of the surviving students from the Columbine High School shooting is going to join us. His name is Craig Scott. Craig found himself in what turned out to be the deadliest room in the entire building. It's the library. This is the room where 10 students, where he was gathered with, lost their lives, including two friends who sat next to him, hiding underneath a table. Craig survived that room and that shooting. He eventually escaped back outside, away from that structure, only to learn that his sister, one of the most vibrantly alive and loving and loved students in the entire school, her name was Rachel Joy Scott, was the very first individual killed. So my friends, what do you do with a tragedy like this when it hits you, not nationally or not in the news or not on Wikipedia, but when this hits you in your life, in your family, at your school? For more than 20 years, Craig has dedicated his life to making a difference in schools. And speaking now ahead of more than 1 million students, Craig has positively impacted students and school cultures around the United States and beyond. He's been teaching the lessons we learned from Columbine, and he's been challenging students to value themselves and love others. Today, Craig's going to join us to recall some of the horrific details of that terrifying day. He's going to share a little bit of his journey toward healing, and ultimately he's going to challenge us to understand what we as a community can do to prevent another tragedy like Columbine from happening in our areas, in our schools, in our nation, and in our lifetime. Let me tell you this right now, whether you have a student in school, you're a teacher in that classroom, you are a student yourself, or you have a pulse, this is a conversation that will move you deeply. This is a conversation with a man who I look up to. This is a conversation that every one of us on the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans, those in the United States and those in more than 120 nations tuning into this podcast can certainly glean some wisdom from. So let me encourage you right now, buckle up. Get ready for a emotional ride as I bring on my friend. And I promise you at the end of the conversation, you're going to think that he's your friend too. His name is Craig Scott. Craig, my friend, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me on, John. I have the best seat in the house. I get to interview some of the, the finest leaders from throughout the world and throughout history. But I have really never been as excited as I am to be with you today. I'm really humbled. I'm really grateful. I'm really in awe of your life and what you've overcome and what you're doing with it. And I know not everybody will know as much about your life yet until we talk about it as I do right now. So when you, if you bumped into someone randomly 
in a grocery store or in an airport. I know you spend a lot of time there. And they said, Craig Scott, hmm, man, what do you do for a living? How would you answer that? Craig Scott, what do you do for a living? Well, I would say that I'm a motivational speaker and uh, also a filmmaker. If I were to have a deeper conversation with somebody, I would tell them that I feel like uh, I'm alive to make a positive impact and that I survived something horrible. And ever since that day felt that way that I was to make a positive impact in this world. My life's work kind of surrounds around story and telling stories. I've told a certain story thousands and thousands of times, but I've also worked in, in, in filmmaking and tell other stories. My life was very impacted by two people that were killers that were very influenced by stories themselves and were influenced a lot by the media. It pushed me into wanting to do stories that inspire. And the stories are a lot more important than sometimes we give credit to. Mm. The stories help us understand who we are, uh, our identity. And that's huge, knowing your identity. And you you don't realize that as much as a young person. Uh, but the older you get, the more you realize how important it is to know who you are. Man, you, you said an awful lot there. And I'm going to slowly unpack some of what you brought forward. You talked about two individuals changing your life their lives were influenced by stories and the stories they believed ultimately would radically change your life and countless other lives too. First for evil, ultimately for good. And normally I spend a lot of time just kind of slow playing this stuff before we get into the real content, but I'm just going to dive right in today. I want you to tell me what your life was like on April 19th, 1999. What was your life like? Yeah, I was a, a sophomore in high school. Uh, I was in kind of grew up in a lower middle class family. My parents were separated when I was a lot younger. I had three older sisters and a little brother. I went to a big suburban high school and in Littleton, Colorado. I was a wrestler. I had faith. Both of my grandfathers were pastors. But what was cool was uh, my dad, who's a really great teacher, kind of broke away from some legalistic stuff and religious type stuff and began more of a real spiritual journey. And that impacted me even at a young age. So from very early, I was always taught it's a, um, it's about what's in people's hearts and, and how they live is, is more important than their theology. I've been fortunate to appreciate people from kind of all, all, all backgrounds ever, even when I was younger so that's a little bit of my life when I on um, when I was 16 years old and on April 19th, 1999. Mm. Life is ordinary for this high school kid out in Denver, Colorado. And my understanding is you spend a little bit too much time looking in the mirror, fixing your hair and your that's sister. Right. Love it. That's right. That's so, right. I can mess it up now. I know it looks pretty perfect right now. <laughs> my sister was out waiting for me in the driveway again. Uh, I used to carry a big comb around in my pocket because I was in the bathroom perfecting my hair. And it's usually the reverse. The yeah, dude. brother would be waiting on a sister who's taking too much time on their hair. But I got into the car and my sister was getting on to me about making us late to school. And we got into an argument. She was listening to a Christian radio station and uh, I was wanting to listen to some rock. So I changed the station and she changed it back and then I changed it and she changed it. And then finally listened to what I wanted to. And at school, my sister was intentional about like wanting to reach out to people that other people wouldn't call cool or kids that weren't popular, basically kids that she she would call the unreached. Yes. And um, she didn't mean that in a religious way. Like she just meant um, people that no one else seemed to care about. And I kind of knew that about her, but I was really at the time... My dream, I wasn't, but I wanted to be popular. I wanted to hang out with the popular guys. I wanted to go to the, all the cool parties. Like that was my dream come true. Sophomore in high school, it's a lot of kids' dreams is they want to, you know, they want to be in on the in crowd. When we got into an argument because I was cooler than my sister, I started calling her names. She would actually pull up to the school. She would drop me off, even though I was making us late and then go park. And she came up to the front of the school. I got out turn and I slammed the car door shut on her. And I had no idea that that would be the last time I would ever see her. Your sister's name is Rachel. And we'll talk a lot more about her during our conversation together. But you walk away from that slammed car door, you enter into school and life is ordinary. First few periods go on without any issues, without anything out of the ordinary. 
lunch bell strikes, you uh, quickly have lunch and then head off for the library. And this is when your world and the world is going to change. And rather than me trying to fill in the blanks or tell you what I've heard and read, I'd love for you to just share with us what your experience was like in the library that day on April 20th, 1999. Yeah, so I was in, uh, went to the school library to study for a test. My school was Columbine High School. I heard some poppy noises coming from outside the school. And it was near the end of the school year. So I saw, thought some seniors were pulling a prank. And then this teacher ran into the room. She was very frantic and she was screaming and yelling at all of us to hide. And then she went over the phone to the phone to call the police and kept yelling at all of us to hide. And I'm wondering, is she part of this prank? I'm not sure what's going on, but I get underneath the table with two of my friends, Matt and Isaiah. And then I hear these uh, poppy noises getting louder and louder. And when the poppy noises came to the school, I realized they were gunshots. And I realized this wasn't a prank. And I became very scared. And my two friends just started to freak out, um, very frantic. But I felt like I heard an inner voice tell me to be still. And so I became very quiet and very still. And the library was the first room the shooters came into. And they were taunting and making fun of kids before they shot or killed them. And we're all hiding underneath tables. So we're just kind of sitting targets. And the first student they shot was a boy, Kyle, who had a disability, who didn't know to hide, who sat out in the open. They would peek underneath the table, say peekaboo and shoot a girl. So they treated it like it was a game. And um, they came over to where I was. They saw my friend Isaiah, who was one of the very few black students at my school. And uh, one of the shooters called the other shooter over, over and said, hey, we have an N-word over here. And the other shooter came over and they dragged Isaiah out from underneath the table, calling him racial slurs. And Isaiah was trying to back up. And the last thing that he said was, I want to see my mom. And they shot and killed Isaiah. And then they shot and killed Matt and left me underneath that table. And shortly after they left the library, having killed 10 students and wounding over a dozen. And I'm in complete um, shock. I'm, I think I'm going to die. I'm covered in blood. And the only thing I needed to do was to, that I knew to do was to pray. I was frozen with fear. I couldn't move. And I asked God to take away my fear. And in that moment, I felt relief from fear. Mm. I felt like I heard that same inner voice speak to me and say, get out of there. And so I was the first student to stand up and I looked around and I saw the shooters were gone. And I yelled at everyone, let's get out of here. And I heard someone asking for help. And there's a girl underneath the table behind me. She had her shoulder blown off by a shotgun blast, and she's rocking back and forth, asking for help over and over. And I helped pick her up, and a group of us ran out of an emergency exit, and there's a police car outside. We all ran behind the police car, and as soon as we got behind that car, the two shooters came back into the library. And so we got out of there just in time. Then other police cars began to come by, and police were exchanging gunfire with the gunmen. Right before I left, um, a friend tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think there's a girl that's been shot over there. And I look out from behind the police car, and I, I didn't realize it at the moment, but I was looking at Rachel. Mm. And she had been killed right outside the school library doors. And Rachel knew the shooters. She had a class with them. She also worked on a couple of productions. Just two weeks earlier, she was in a play. And one of the shooters spotlighted her during the play. And um, they also knew that she was a person of faith, that she was a Christian. And so when they came up to her, according to the boy that was with her, who's now paralyzed, at first he didn't remember for a long time because he went into a coma. But when he first woke up, he told his family what had happened and said that they started mocking her for her faith, saying, like, where is your God now? And the last moment of her life was... One of them picked her up by her hair and said, do you still believe in God? And she said, you know, I do. And he said, well, go be with him. Mm. And she took her last shot. And so, yeah, my life completely changed that day. It impacted our country, the world a little bit. We were asking how, why could this happen? It was the first mass school shooting that happened in the United States. It was a day in history that people remember where they were and what they were doing. Uh, there's been a lot worse school shootings since then. 
but that was the first. And so it was one that if you ask anyone that's old enough to remember, they remember where they were and what they were doing. Craig, I'm just riveted and broken and sad hearing you share this. And I know it's been 24 years almost now. And, you know, it seems like a lifetime ago and yesterday, I'm sure for you, you, you shared that story in thousands of interviews and thousands of presentations around the country and around the world. When you tell people what you experienced that day, what, what do you feel today? So now that you, sh- you lived that, that's a long time ago, saying that today, and talking about Isaiah and talking about Kyle and talking about Rachel and hiding behind the police car. What do you feel today? Well, at first when I would share, it was therapeutic, especially because I had sympathy and I had people that cared about. And, uh, and, and then I also kind of had a little bit of a message. So there was a purpose to it. But then after sharing so many times, it actually became, came anti-therapeutic. It, it, it became not healthy for me. Now, today, over 20 years later, when I share it, it's just a story. It's a true story, but it's not where I'm at anymore. It's a story of my past. And what I've come to realize in someone that shares their story so often is you are not your story. Your story is like the path and the journey that you're on. But you have a past story. You have a current story. You have a future story. And those all look a little different. And none of those are you separating myself from my story was something that was helpful for me. So when I tell it every once in a while, I'll get a little emotional, but not really because I'm telling it for a purpose, usually to relate to the audience I'm talking with, with to relate to their story. And I've had people that have told me their tragedies with a smile on their face, not because what they went through was happy or because they're a weird person, but because they've earned a healed whole place. You've had, two and a half decades to reflect on that story and to uh, heal, not not to get over, but to heal through that story. First time I heard your story and met you uh, wasn't at a speaking event. It wasn't through some online video or podcast. It was actually through our friend Katie Kirk. The day after the shooting, you don't have any time to heal. The, The school's still under police watch. There's still yellow tape surrounding Columbine High School. And and you at five o'clock in the morning, it's snowing in Denver that day. You are on live national television with Katie Couric interviewing you and, and a, a friend of yours. Share with me what you remember from that. You know, in a weird way, things get very simple after a big tragedy happens in your life, meaning that the things that aren't important kind of fade away. And the the simple things that you might overlook become very important. I didn't watch the news at 16. There wasn't social media. So kids I know didn't really watch the news. I didn't know who Katie Kirk was or anything. I wanted to go on the show because uh, I heard my dad's, my friend Isaiah's dad was going to be on the show. And just having spent the last minutes with his son, I just wanted to give him a hug. Mm. I mean, it was that simple. But it ended up becoming Katie Kirk. She said her most powerful interview that she ever did. She stopped the cameras from going to commercial as I recounted. And I was in complete shock. And um, as I was talking about Isaiah's last moments, his dad, big black guy, reaches over and puts his hand on mine. And the cameras did a close up on the hands on each other. And it was just a kind of a powerful scene. Katie's become a friend since then. She was very wonderful during the interview, but uh, since then too. And uh, the media actually has been pretty good to me uh, over the years and uh, kind of allowed me to share the story and get the message I wanted to across. So I feel fortunate in that way with the media. But yeah, it was uh, the day after I was just in complete shock. Um, My dad was there watching and my dad said that he felt an anointing. Yeah. And uh, that's a kind of a religious word, but basically he felt a divine moment happening and he couldn't explain it as he wa- he said, as he watched, it would just felt like a divine moment that was happening. And it's actually was the, the launch of something that I didn't know. And it was the launch of me sharing this story and my family sharing this story. And now all these years later in person through our programs and all of our speakers, we've reached over 30 million teenagers. We've stopped over a dozen school shootings. 
I have a book at home of over 10,000 emails of, of just suicidal students that contemplated suicide, heard the story, and then had a change of heart. And I still, every week, get those messages. You can say that my dad felt something correctly. You know, he felt that an anointing at something divine on this uh, interview. He and everyone else, it's unmistakable that something far bigger than yourself and Katie Kirk happen to be part and in the middle of that conversation. And Katie Kirk takes your friend's dad's hand. And so she's holding his hand. He's not holding your left hand with your right hand. You're holding his hand and you're all crying and you're all being honest about what you went through. And yet there's also this whisper of hope in the midst of a profound, unimaginable storm. You lose your friends. You lose a buddy seated next to you that day in the library who dreamed of being the first in his family to graduate high school. And you're sitting next to his dad that, that, that morning. You also had a chance weeks and weeks later to move a bookshelf out of Rachel's room. And behind that bookshelf, you found her handprint. Would you talk about that divine anointing? Yeah, when Rachel was 13, she she left uh, behind a lot of journals. In fact, at the time that she died, she had seven journals. Some of them, a couple of she shared with friends. Some were, were filled with poetry and artwork, but she was a writer. And uh, when she was, and, and we found a couple of themes in her journals. And one of the themes that we found was she wanted God to use her to impact millions of people. When she was 13, she traced her hands on the back of an old dresser, like she overlapped her hands. And in the center of one of her hands, she wrote, these hands belong to Rachel Joy Scott and will someday touch millions of people's hearts. And actually, it wasn't weeks later. It was years later that we found this drawing. And it was actually on a Christmas day, but we were moving furniture wow. around. And my other sister saw this on the back of a dresser. Well, by that time, it had come true. She had impacted millions of people's hearts. She wrote some things that were kind of, that were prophetic. She had a feeling about her life that she wasn't going to live to be very old. She told my other sister, my cousins, and some of her friends, actually, that she didn't feel like she was going to live old enough to get married. Of course, nobody wants to hear someone you love talk that way. And you're like, oh, come on, no, stop that. And she would say it like it's matter of fact, like the sky is blue. She said, no, I just don't feel like I'm going to live to be very old or get to do all the things. And it wasn't coming from like a place of suicide. So there were other things, an incredible thing that she drew a half an hour before she was killed. Other things that she wrote, um, other things that she said that uh, this strong sense that she was going to die young, but that she was going to impact millions of people. These are the hands of Rachel Joy Scott, and they will impact millions of hearts. And she's doing that, but she's doing it with your work and with your help and with your voice and with your story. I, I want to talk a little bit about that life and that story and the words that you use, because many people chose not to use them or chose to give up on their stories. My understanding is that several parents of children who lost their life that day have lost their life to suicide, that many classmates of friends who lost their life that day have lost their life both to suicide and also drug overdose, that the overwhelm of experiencing this negatively and for good reason, but negatively affected people's lives forever. And then there's you, who, you know, right before we hit record, you talked about the various schools that you're going to this week, and then next week, and then the following week, and all the lives you're still striving to touch going forward. To what do you credit the reason why your life has gone the direction as it has? Why do you choose to keep rising from bed, in particular in the early days, and try to be used for good? First, I never wanted Columbine to be an excuse for me to to fail or mess up or do things because uh, we know the longer we live that our choices, if we're honest with ourselves, have, have less to do with our circumstances and more to do with uh, our, our choosing. And so I didn't want Columbine to be an excuse to, to fail. I, I would say that this at my core thing that helps me overcome is feeling like I hear the voice of God in my life, call it spirit, call it conscious. Um, but I, I listen to that voice and I try to follow it. And that voice also gives me comfort. It gives me encouragement. It gives me hope. It gives me a vision. 
I listen to it every day. And all great philosophies, all great religions talk about quieting your thoughts and your mind and your head and listening to your heart. You see it in story after story in movies or shows or, or books. But that's what I try to do. And that voice gives me even words to say sometimes when I'm right. speaking. That's the biggest thing that's helped me to uh, endure. You know, also, I think having an attitude that I'm living my life, not just for myself and thinking about things that I overcome in life. And I still deal with depression at times. I've dealt with a lot of depression in my life. When I overcome things, I think, okay, now I'm the better me, not just for myself, right. but every person that I come into genuine contact with. And that's the same thing that's true for you. That's true for anyone. When we overcome things, we we become better and then we are better able to speak to people, to be true to people and help others. At an early age, when I didn't think this way before, the one thing that I'm thankful now for having gone through Columbine, I'm very thankful for it. I wish I wish Isaiah, Matt, and Rachel lived a long life, and I, I, I would have them back if I could. But uh, I don't think Rachel would come back. I think if she had a choice to live a short life and impact millions, she would choose that. She honestly would. Mm. But uh, I, I'm, I'm thankful for it. That's what I try to tell teens today when I speak. Yeah. Hey, the, the crap that you're going through right now, that can be the very fertilizer for the growth that you need. And then you'll be thankful for it and see it that way. Let me bring it back to one. Because sometimes when we talk in 70,000, or a, a book with 10,000 emails, it's easy to lose sight of the, the profound effect on one. I was watching, obviously preparing for today's episode, a bunch of your videos, and one of them had more than 1,400 comments on it. That's way too many comments to read all. So I just paged down like seven times, boom, 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 boom. And then I read the first comment. It's from Angelia Stokes from one year ago. And here's what it says. I'll never forget the day that this man came to my school. I had been brutally bullied every day. Just hear that, man. It breaks my heart even saying it. I had been brutally bullied every day. And after his visit, my bullies actually came up to me over the next several weeks and apologized to me for bullying me. That's it. That's the only comment that I read online. And uh, I think that sums up the impact on one life. Now you imagine scaling that over all the schools and the millions of lives you've affected. When you hear that, though, what do you feel? I moved when I hear that. And I also feel like that, that it's going to sound religious or cliche, but I feel like it's God's doing. I wasn't someone that worked to get where I'm at. Like I didn't start work really hard and then make my dream come true. Something happened to me. Right. And this platform was then given to me and these cameras were put on me. And yet I had a world of people praying for me that I didn't know literally praying for me by name, praying for my school, praying for my family. And I felt grace come over me. And I literally kind of felt carried through those initial days. And I was saying things I didn't even realize were setting things up for my career and my life journey and what I would be doing for the next years and years and years. But when I hear that, it's an honor. And you're right, John, that if you're a person that you get into the line of work of really helping people, you can lose sight of the individual. And I have done that. I've done that time and again, but I have to stop and think, man, there's so many people that would love to get to make the kind of difference that I get to make every week. Yeah. There's a price tag, but it's so worth it. Mm. So you and I are having this conversation two days after there was a school shooting in Nashville, a covenant school. What needs to happen? And everything's so politicized. So immediately, this is going to offend half of our listeners that O'Leary is even having the audacity to ask this guy a question like this. But in your mind, what needs to begin happening so that there are less likelihoods of events like Covenant and Uvalde and Sandy Hook and Parkland and all the other schools, including Columbine? What, what begins to push back against that evil? Well, there are a number of factors that go into making our culture safe and whole 
and there are laws that can help that. Overall, after speaking to millions of teenagers and looking at the whole broad picture of what's happening with youth today, I would say I would call it a heart problem. I would call it a spiritual problem. And, and here's the thing is rules never change a person's heart. You right. can create a lot of rules or laws. And some of that is necessary. And some of that might help make it harder. Like, for example, gun control, make it harder for someone to get a, a firearm. I'm all about that. But I know that's not the deepest answer. Because that same person could get propane tanks and set them up in their school and kill 500 kids. They could do a lot of different things. I am for things that make sense. But here's the thing is that that doesn't change that person's intent. Right. How do we change that? Well, it does start on an, on an individual level with how we treat people. You never know what you might be preventing by being a role model to someone. Okay, let me tell you a true story. A girl came up to me, handed me a bullet one day. And she said, I was going to take my life with this bullet, but I was sitting outside the steps of my school and a popular football player came up and said hi to me. He said, hi. And I came to school the next day and I put this bullet in his hand and said, I was going to take my life with this, but you said hi to me. So it's not, it's not about going and then trying to say hi to everybody. It's the heart of yeah. that People are, uh, even though with, and we hear it all the time, technology has made it, us more connected than ever, but yet there's more loneliness and we're not truly connected. It's a illusion of connection. I have an illusion that a million people are following me. They're not my disciples. They're not truly, they might see a picture and hit a button. Yes. You know, that's not a relationship. That's not a connect, real connection. Kids today are in a world where they can so easily compare themselves to these picture-perfect life-is-awesome people whose life isn't awesome and who filtered those videos and pictures to look just so good. And they compare their, their life to that, and then they feel lacking. But it's a lie. They're comparing themselves to a lie. What happened also in our school system, I've learned a lot about our educational uh, history in, our, in, our, in America my dad's actually a scholar in it. For the longest time in our country, for nearly 200 years, I don't know if you know this, John, but we were the number one country in the world in education. We were considered the number one country for 200 years, the leading in, in education. When that was the case, we had a different philosophy than we do today. Every teacher knew, every single teacher, it's filled in these books, the three H's. Three H's were heart, head, and hands. They believed it was their job as a teacher, and it was our job as a society to first teach the heart of students. What does that mean? It means to teach principles and character and value and life, life principles, not just knowledge, not information, but how to live. Now, at the time, that was tied in with a lot of religion, which makes sense. We were founded on a lot of religious principle. George Washington himself, this is a direct quote from him, said, national virtue cannot exist without religious morality. Mm. Anyways, the point is this, is that it was tied in with a lot of religion. Now, I don't believe in trying to bring religion back into schools. But when we removed, at one point in 1963, we said, okay, we need to re remove all this religious stuff from school. And they stopped doing like prayer in school and they, they removed from textbooks things to do. But the problem was that as they're removing religion, they also removed anything that was teaching values or character. So now it all became about just academics. So we had a switch in philosophy. Now the focus of our educational system, even to this day, even though you have a lot of teachers and educators that care about the hearts of students, our system is focused on academic achievement, and yet we are one, we are nowhere near as performing as we were, and we are nowhere near as superior as we were academically then. When you teach the heart, you teach things like honesty and courage. You teach things like integrity. What does integrity mean? Integrity means integrated. It means when your when your actions line up with your words and your words are lining up with what you truly think. 
That's integrated. They were learning these kinds of things every day at school. Now, they, it's a blip on the radar. They might hear about it. They might see a poster on the wall in school. It might be in the mission statement of the school. They might bring in an assembly program like mine, but it's not ingrained. It's not, it's not the focus. When, the, when they have staff meetings, it's not their focus. It's academics. That's one issue. So when we look at school shootings overall, there's no one, one answer. There's no one thing that I can say, this is what will solve this. It's a number of things working together. But overall, I would say it's a heart issue. That's where the problems are. That's where the solutions are. And that sounds like a, a vague thing. No, man, that sounds practical. When I go into school and I inspire some kid's heart with a story, and I, I had the biggest bully at a school, a principal nearly tackled me when I left school because he said, hey, that big kid that came up to you after the assembly to talk to, he's been the biggest problem at our school for the last four years. He's a senior. He came up to me and he said, how do you apologize for being the biggest problem for the last four years? I just said, you know, I think you should just sit here in this auditorium and just, I think the answer will come to you. Guess what he did? He got a sign and wrote the words, I'm sorry, on a poster. And he stood outside his school at the end of school. His kids were coming out with tears, tears coming down his face. So what impact do you think that's going to have? on everything else now only now is he gonna is he apologizing and gonna treat people better it's gonna make him think about the kind of character and that affects everything Uh, that's why i'm big on story uh i've seen the power of story overall we have to acknowledge that we all are made of spirit mind and body and we used to acknowledge that in our country we don't as much anymore but it's hard because there's so many differing beliefs, but there are universal principles and values that we can all agree on that we need to teach kids, teach them. We need to be able to teach a kid kindness and compassion, but not just that. That's pretty easy. That's pretty easy. You, you, everyone will agree on that. But teaching them like integrity, teaching people that there are truths out there that apply to everybody that that there are values that are timeless and then we need role models we need heroes we also as adults we have to get into the minds of kids educators back in the day they called it sympathetic imagination you have to you have to not just have what you know and try to put it into the mind of a young kid they're not going to hear you you have to get into their world see what's important to them and speak their language and that's all that takes. That sounds hard, but all that takes is observation. Just observe and you will find ways to connect and then speak in, speak some wisdom into kids because so many are lost today. Uh, 70% of kids dealing with depression. If you think that's not your problem, it's, it's, it's going to affect our society more and more and more over time. We need heroes. We need values. We need truth. We need honesty and we need uh, integrity and we need resilience. Okay. So our organization's name is Live Inspired. And although we seldom need legal help, when we do, I turn to a board member, a friend, a Marine. His name is Brian Caveney. When I told Brian, who I had the honor today of interviewing, and the backstory, Craig, to your life, he asked me this question. Man, how how does a man who has seen and endured such evil remain so hope-filled in his life? So as we get ready to shift into the Live Inspired 7, that's going to be my final question for you today. How have you, a fellow who has experienced evil firsthand, remained so hope-filled in your life? Well, that, that light overcomes darkness. There is evil. There's real evil out there. There's evil that will kill you, your family, your loved ones. There are people that have a lot of evil in their hearts. But what I've come to understand is people are not evil. There are evil things in people's hearts. And so I don't view, I don't even view the shooters at Columbine as evil. They had a lot of evil in their heart and they chose evil things that led them. But at one point they were little boys filled with love and life and they'd give you a hug and they'd 
give you their extra cookie if they had it. You know, that was in them somewhere. If you talk to their parents, they'll tell you about those times. My hope is that light wins. Darkness cannot fight against light. What we have to do is not focus on the darkness. You don't fight the darkness. You shine a light. So you don't sit there and point out everything that's wrong with the world. And I'm not saying you become ignorant and you pretend like there isn't darkness. No, that's being ignorant, but you don't focus on it. You focus on the solution. It's like I help with my dad create what's considered the largest school assembly program in the country. And we usually get labeled as the biggest anti-bullying program. But I don't consider myself an anti-bullying program. I consider myself a pro-kindness, compassion. Because when you focus on the right things, it automatically negates the wrong things. So when you create a culture where everybody is feels like everybody matters, that everybody has value, everybody is respected, then bullying, isolation, and disconnection can't exist. Today, we focus, the news wants to focus on things like racism. Instead, if they were to tell stories, stories of people of different backgrounds and different lives being united in what they have in common, we would inspire more of the same. We're very imitative creatures. So what are we seeing? What are we watching? But be encouraged because at the end of the day, evil does not win. Love wins. Love, love is stronger than evil. Well, my friend, I could spend the next eight hours sitting cross-legged listening to you share your story and the deep effect that it's had on my life and the lives of hundreds of thousands and now even millions of individuals around the country and around the world. Yet because I know you have more lives to impact, we're going to move forward now into what we call the Live Inspired 7. So Craig, Scott, you ready for these? Here we go. Question number one, what has been the most inspirational or most impactful book you've ever read? One of the most impactful books for me was uh, on leadership and it's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, which is popular amongst anybody that reads leadership books. A true story that was very inspiring to was a friend. His name is Kyle Maynard. Guy was born with no arms and no legs. And he became a champion wrestler, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and even did a mixed martial arts fight. He inspires me. And you know, the truth is, we don't remember most of what we read or what most of what a good speaker says. We remember a, an, the spirit of something. Awesome, man. Great answer. Question number two, what is a characteristic or a trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up in Colorado that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Purity, purity of heart. I, I wish I had the purity of, of, of my eight-year-old self. You know, I've got junk in my heart, just like everybody. If your home caught fire and all living things and all living people are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one item you would grab? What's that one thing? I would grab my computer because it's what I keep all my journals on and all my pictures and all my uh, so much on. Honestly, though, you know what? I take that back. I would lose that and I would save my sister's backpack. Wow. My sister's backpack is riddled with bullets and has blood stains on it, but it also has incredible writings. She wrote on there, what is life without the life maker? Just like her journal, she put a bunch of artwork and quotes on it. I would grab that over my, my laptop. Shifting into question number four, if you are seated on a bench overlooking a gorgeous beach, or in your case, a mountain range, and have an opportunity of having a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? First, it would be Jesus. If it weren't him, if it was from our history, it would be George Washington. Victor Frankl would be one. Uh, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Holocaust survivor who survived a number of camps, but Auschwitz, which was one of the worst. Uh, one last person would be Nelson Mandela. All right, man, that's a, a pretty strong group. Nelson Mandela, Jesus Christ, George Washington, and Viktor Frankl. Those are some incredible leaders. And what's the best advice they or your parents or Rachel or anyone else ever gave you? So here's the next question. What's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice that I've ever heard was from my father. 
when he told me to follow spirit. All right, man. Beautiful advice. Just two questions to go. If you could go back in time and whisper some encouragement or some advice to yourself at age 20, what would you say? I would give myself a poem that my dad wrote about 10 years ago that's been really helpful for me. And it's called In the Quiet. And I'll just, I'll just say the poem for you. But uh, it's In the Quiet, I Find Peace, where the outside noises cease, where, where my mind has settled down and my thoughts no longer race. In the chambers of my spirit, I have found a sacred place where the unseen things embrace me, where the invisible is real. There and find the treasure that activity would steal. Mm-hmm. Hear the whisper of the poets that have beckoned us to know of that inner sanctuary where we seldom ever go. In the quiet of our being, creativity is born and it rises to the surface to a world that's hurt and torn. Deep within me, love replaces all the anger and all the fear. In the stillness is a knowing who I am and why I'm here. So I would go back to myself and I would just say, Craig, you know, spend time, more time in the quiet because that's a true place of power. All right, man, you you just about ran the gauntlet. Here we go. Final question for a man that I look up to, that I respect, that I love. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Craig Scott, how would you like your one sentence to read? Oh, I would love uh, it to read a son of God who helped a lot of people. Well, Craig Scott, son of God friend of millions. You have helped millions and millions of individuals, including the one asking the questions today. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the Live Inspired podcast, and maybe even more importantly, for living out the life for Rachel that she was unable to live out for herself. You have impacted so many lives this side of eternity, and I can only imagine how proud Rachel is of you on the other side of eternity. Thank you, John. Thanks for the work you do too, man. And thank you so much for having me on. And My friends, that is the story and the life and the voice of our friend, Craig Scott. My name is John O'Leary and today is our day. What a gift it is. Choose to live inspired. I mentioned as we began this recording with Craig Scott, that at the end of the conversation, you would have a friend. For as long as you've been listening to my voice, I hope that you view this voice and the guy who's uttering these words right now as a friend. But after hearing Craig's conversation with us about his loss, about what he witnessed, about what he experienced, about what he endured, about all that he lost and about the healing journey he went on afterwards, about the work he's doing now, about the lives he's helping empower and save and invest into, that you recognize you've got a friend in him as well. My friends, when we look at these crises that face our schools and face our nation and face our nations, I think Craig has some incredible ideas on how we can take the next right step forward. And again, I don't really care if you lean left or right on this topic or any other, this is a conversation that bears listening to one more time. And it certainly bears sharing with your friends in the marketplace right now that there's a person who witnessed this, a person who endured this, and a person who has some ideas on how to ensure that the rest of us don't go through something like this. So wherever you work out, worship, work, or walk, I encourage you right now to let those friends know that you listened to a mighty conversation today with a incredible individual named Craig Scott. And if they want to learn a little bit more around not only tragedy, but how we can redeem it and turn it into triumph, check it out. Uh, if you want to share this episode, you can do so by, of course, sharing on social media, sharing our website, johnallearyinspires.com forward slash podcast, or just let them know anywhere they draw down their podcast that your friend, your family, your coworker ought to be checking out this one. I want to thank you for checking out this one. I want to thank you for listening to this one. I want to thank you for believing like I do that the struggle's real, that the headwind is fierce, 
but the challenges we face individually and collectively aren't going away anytime soon. And yet, here's the good news, and yet, life is sacred. We are better together. The foundation is firm, and the best is yet to come. If you want to hear a conversation around a gentleman who is modeling what that looks like, not only in the school system, but also in the community as a whole, let me share with you right now one of my absolute favorite conversations we've had on the Live Inspired podcast. It's with my buddy, Art McCoy. Art came into a failing school district. None of the kids at that time were graduating. And by the time he himself graduated on from that role, they had a 100% graduation rate. How? Simple, John, he told me. Love. Love. So if you want to hear a conversation about redeeming the struggles in the world with love, check it out right now. It's a conversation with Art McCoy. You can learn more about that one at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Well, family and friends, neighbors, community, I want to thank you again for tuning in to our episode today. And I want to thank you for believing with conviction like I do, that the foundation is firm, the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is our day. What a gift. Be love and live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley